right, thank you, Eric and Amber. You're wondering, where's Daniel? Well, he's taking some time off. He can't be here all the time, Lee. I'm his dad, and I'll be glad, looking forward to sharing the word with you today. Uh, if you look in your bulletin, one thing important, <clears throat> on the inside, lower right-hand side, church potluck next Sunday. Don't you love them? We haven't had them for quite a while. And if your uh, last name starts A to H, please bring a side dish to share. But one thing that we will not tolerate at these potlucks is Brussels sprouts. Just keep them out of out of the house. <laughs> I'm just kidding. If you bring them, they'll keep them somewhere out of the way. And uh, uh, salad, I through R, S through Z. Please bring a dessert. Put it in Pastor Doug's car until time for the luncheon. So that's the information you need for next week. That'll be after our second service. We're so glad you're here today. And uh, we are going to be enjoying a challenging message today from God's Word. We're not going to be in John today. Daniel will be back next Sunday and continue that study. Today we're going to look at trials. Did you enjoy the Olympics? Yeah. Um, I didn't know there were so many ways to swim. I mean, <laughs> how, how, many, uh, how many contests can you have in swimming? But before the trials, there were the, before the Olympics, there were the Olympic trials. And the trials, uh, people from each country, the athletes would go and run their race or do their exercise, and the top three would go on to the Olympics to represent their country. How do you think they felt facing the trials for the Olympics? A little nervous and excited, hoping they would do well. What are you like when you face a trial? Not an Olympic trial. It may seem like an Olympic trial, but uh, we all face trials. They're non-optional. You're in one, were in one, will be in one, or now in several because they just happen. The word trials is used frequently in the New Testament because there's no get-out-of-jail-free card or immunity offered by God to the followers of Jesus Christ. So trials are to be expected for all of us. We're going to look at this letter that was one of the earliest letters written to Christians uh, in the uh, early year, about 60 A.D. And this says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Are you kidding me? You start your letter like this? Where's all the flowery theology? It's almost like you got problems? Well, then be happy about it. This letter, written around 60 A.D., promises, counsels joy at the beginning of a trial. Now, joy is throughout the New Testament, way more than other concepts. In fact, I want you to look at Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you see, it's almost like when you look at the uh, letters of the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus, that when you need joy in a trial, it will be supplied. You don't have to make it up on your own. There is a rich resource of joy. So we're going to go back to that first part, chapter 1, verse 2, 
and dig into it. Consider it joy, pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. We don't usually think of any kind of joy when we are approaching an experience that will be painful, disturbing, unsettling, unpleasant. How do we usually feel when we face those kinds of things? Scared? We've probably done all we could to avoid it, and we're wondering how we can get out of it. But we are counseled here. It's a command, actually. Consider it joy when you face trials. Now, we have been in a national and global trial, multi-trials, for the last year and a half. The, the, the COVID thing has uh, challenged us all over the world, making us feeling vulnerable about it. It has caused fallout financially. People have lost their jobs, their homes. It has caused political rifts, brother against brother, people against each other, dissonance, conflict. Uh, and then when you add in uh, what we've got locally, wildfires, uh, floods, uh, detours, there's lots of trials to be had, aren't there? In fact, psychologists are now saying we are in a time of cumulative stress. And what that means, there is an actual index on stress. It's, it's 1 to 10. 1 is low stress, not much problem. 10 is stressed out. Now, wouldn't you love to sort of hover around 1 and 2? But the national average, according to the tests that are being administered, is that the, the, the normal American person is now at a 6.1. Now, when you're at a 6.1 or a 7, that, now that's average. So there's some people below and some higher. You've got a little bit of a cushion if you're under four. But once you get six and seven, something comes along and it spikes. And what's our reaction? How do we react to that? You see, we are in a situation where the, the words of this letter today are especially relevant to us. Not only are you facing personal trials, but we are in a season of life worldwide and in America where there is a constant exertion of stress that we face. We face these challenges, and it seems sometimes overwhelming. How long has this been going on? You may be dealing with a health issue or the breakdown of a relationship or financial, whatever it may be. You may finally come to the point and you just say, I need a break. I need to be able to step out of this, out of these circumstances. I just need a break. If that's you, you've come to the right place on the right day. In fact, if any of these words are descriptive of you, and that would be uh, that you are down, distressed, depressed, uh, anxious, in denial, Tapped out, fed up, overwhelmed, this letter is for you. This letter was written not by some academic sitting in an ivory tower or by some uh, ruthless person wanting to punish people who are already hurting. This letter was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. And this is about 60 A.D., 25, 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, 
And James, the half-brother of Jesus, who didn't even believe that Jesus was the Son of God when Jesus was alive. That would be a tough sell, wouldn't it? If you were an older brother, that your younger siblings would look at you and say, well, that's the Son of God. <laughs> that'd, that'd be kind of tough, you know. Who did that? Was well, Jesus. <laughs> no. <laughs> James came to faith after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus appeared to him in person after the resurrection. So James had some catching up to do. James, uh, living in a world at that time, much like our world now, oppressive, poverty, famine, government. There wasn't free speech. If you didn't pinch the right incense and say the right things, you'd be in trouble with the government. There was no leniency. And there was persecution. It was unruly, unsettled. And so these people lived in turbulent times, much like what we live in now. And especially, especially for the recipients of this letter, we'll see in a moment. James had become the head of the church in Jerusalem. And he had been called upon to write letters uh, working out uh, details of belief and behavior for Christians in other areas. And here he is writing to, he will say in just a moment, to the 12 tribes scattered, scattered among the nations. When Stephen was stoned, after that, the Christians began to be persecuted by the authorities in Jerusalem. Many of them fled that pressure. But there were others whose homes were taken over, their goods were confiscated, and they were sent on the run with the clothes on their back. And they went to foreign countries and tried to eke out a living. This letter is addressed to those people who have lost probably everything, and now they're attempting to live, to make a living, to survive in a foreign and strange land. And these are people who had trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So there, we're going to see that there is a resource here that they have that is available to those who trust in Jesus to face trials. Even James, as he began to lead the church, found himself, along with the other disciples, being intruded upon by the authorities, arrested, often beaten before they were released. In fact, James, a different James, the disciple of Jesus, brother of John, he was arrested and executed to please the non-Christians and to threaten the Christians. This is the backdrop of this letter. This letter, he says, this is me, and as you said a moment ago, uh, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his brother he's talking about. But now the Savior that he knows that he is. From doubting to becoming a leader of the church, he went through probably more theological uh, twists and struggles than most of us and came to this point of a steady and a strong faith. Enough to write this. Would it take would it take a lot of nerve to write this to people who had lost everything and were scattered? It would take a lot more than nerve. 
Let's look at the whole passage, and then we'll dig into each one. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete and lacking in nothing. Three verses. The first three verses of the letter, bam, right off the top, he addresses what they are facing every day. Let's look at just that first uh, phrase there in, in verse 2. Consider it pure joy. Now, James is not advising, just feel happy when you have problems. Just get kind of giddy when troubles come your way. He didn't say that at all. In fact, he didn't even use the word happy, which is happenstance depending on circumstance. What he says instead, consider it, go ahead and leave it up there, consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, when you face various trials, he is giving Christians a survival tool. What is that tool? To consider it joy when you are approaching what will be unpleasant and difficult, stretch you and challenge you in every way. It's a survival tool, and he didn't write this just to everyone, just to Christians. You know why? A normal person without the Holy Spirit doesn't believe in Jesus without the resources that God provides to those who believe. A normal person looks at life on the horizontal. You got COVID, got disruption, civil unrest, racial issues. You've got all these things going on. And so this person has to rely upon his or her own resources only to deal and face these problems. And then you add in a financial turn down or a sickness or a relationship gone bad or, or a flat tire or whatever it may be. That person has to deal with the situation and trial with only what they have within themselves. Their mind, their emotions, their will, their physical abilities. And how many times has that come up short? Here's what we do. We begin to project ourselves into the problem and we utilize all of our skills and energies that we have to be able to deal with that projected imagined problem and we do that and no that won't work so we do it another way that won't work I, I can't sustain that we look at it a different way well maybe this will help and no that won't work and so after about 12 or 15 times this person is convinced that it's going to be a disaster because they've utilized everything they can think of to them. Well, it's called worry. Worry is imagining worst-case scenarios projected into the future. If all you've got to depend upon is what you've got within yourself, you will face many trials and difficulties that really don't have a positive outcome. So this is written to Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who are able to call upon and receive the resources that God has. And we're going to look at that. How do you consider something joy? 
Remember, it's not a demand to be happy. It's a command to consider it all joy. In your ledger book of life or your app, wherever it is, you've got two columns, good experiences, bad experiences. And so you look at those experiences, and you're going to write it down in one of the columns. When you have a trial and you're approaching something that looks difficult and unpleasant and painful, where do you put it? Which column do you put it in? The good one. The good one. Consider it joy. We'll see why we can do that. In fact, Clayton, if you could bring the uh, marker board up and you want to get your uh, uh, note sheet out, we're going to see how this works. This is actually a process, an escalating process. Once you consider it joy, then it takes a certain turn of the trials that we face. So we're going to start where James starts. On the very left-hand side of your page there, midway, midway, write trials. Trials. Trials are non-optional. Some you bring on yourself. Some deliberately, some accidentally, some other people bring upon you. Some are just random. But trials come. They're non-optional. And so the only thing that you can do during or before a trial is to choose your response. And so what we're going to do is go up here a step. Joy. Consider it joy. Figure it as a joy. Count it as a joy when you encounter various trials. As you begin this escalating scale, we're going to see that James, in writing this command, and I use that word advisedly, if you are a Christian, if you're a spirit-filled Christian who believes that Jesus died for you, rose from the grave to forgive your sins and reconcile you with God, then when you see a command in the Bible, it's not just a, you got to do this. It's an empowered promise. It's not you got to consider it joy. It's you can consider it joy. It's not just don't kill people, don't steal their stuff. It's uh, you don't have to. There's no need. You can be content with who you are, what you have. You see, commands for the Christian are, you may want to write this down, empowered promises. In other words, God will give you the power to do what he tells you to do. He's not going to tell you to do something that it's impossible for you to do. If you read a command, if you hear a command by God, you can assume that encapsulated in that command is the power to do it. So in other words, let me encourage you to say, not only are you empowered to consider joy when trials come, but as we read in Romans 15 a while ago, throughout the New Testament, there's a continual enjoying the presence of God that builds your faith, 
builds your strength and prepares you for the trials. Do you know of any athlete that would go to an Olympic trial never having run a race or taken a step? No. And just like that, the Holy Spirit prepares us as we spend time in His Word, get His Word in us. He prepares us so that when we come to a trial, we're not coming from a neutral or deficit position. We're coming with a track record of God's faithfulness so that we can consider difficulties as joy. Does that make sense? Hopefully that's encouraging. Also, as we look at this, consider it all joy, brothers and sisters. James is writing this as a pastoral love note. He probably knew personally some of these people who've been scattered, who've been beaten. There's things that have been taken away. He's writing this out of compassion. He doesn't want them to get taken down or taken out when things get difficult. He wants to give them this survival tool just like a good father or a good mother would want to prepare their children for difficulties that they may face. Does that make sense? All right. Let's go to the next verse, verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. When you are in a trial, your faith is on trial. It exposes it. Over the last year and a half, I've uh, had opportunity to counsel with many people individually and, and people in marriage. And I can tell you that the last year and a half has exposed the foundation of a relationship. And sometimes that foundation is strong and sometimes it's not substantial. This difficulty will expose your faith. The testing of your faith. In fact, as you're going this way, you've considered it joy. Let's say it's the proving of your faith, or you wouldn't even be here. You wouldn't have made that step. So it's a proving, proven faith. And it says that the testing of your faith, the proving of your faith, in other words, that you trust God will care for you, you trust He will provide for you, you trust He'll be with you, it produces perseverance. Now, perseverance isn't regarded as much of a valuable character trait in our society, is it? Uh, we have learned to bail. We bail out of unpleasant, difficult job situations, geographical locales, schools, marriages. If it gets tough, what do the tough do? They, the untough get going. You, you see, perseverance is a character trait that isn't highly regarded, and yet, do you want to be the kind of person who can endure, who can persevere, who can have the patience to stay and work it out and learn what you will learn nowhere else in this difficulty. 
The person who bails every time things get tough stay at the same level of maturity. They don't learn. They go and start all over again the same problems. So this perseverance that we're talking about here it enables us faith in God. He will get us through this. He'll provide what we need. He will do it in such a way that the person who is trusting God with proven faith, this person enters the trial. I want you to picture the kind of person facing a trial, confident, secure. Considerate, compassionate, wise, joyful. Who do you want to be in a trial with? You see, the profile of the person who is following this path is the profile of a person that can change the environment. Not a desperate person. Not someone who's flying off the handle. We're talking about a person who is in this trial on purpose. They might not have gotten into it on purpose, but now they have a purpose to bring glory to God. To live and endure this trial and go through this trial in such a way that God has anointed them with what they need to get through this trial. So it's stay calm. Trust God. Listen for what he has to say. Take note of counsel for similar situations that may be in the Bible already. And do and say, behave, respond as a person with proven faith. Well, let's say this happens, for example, in a conflict with a boss. Let's say that uh, you and your boss are getting crossways. Your boss is on your back pointing out your faults. Now, if you're this person and that happens, then you are standing there listening, trying to understand what your boss is saying. And you're reflecting back what you're hearing. It sounds like, boss, that uh, you're describing that I really wasn't up to speed on this uh, going into this season. And uh, I got to tell you, I want to apologize for that. In fact, I'd really appreciate some coaching so I can get better in this area. Is that stunning or what? Usually if your boss is on you, what are you doing? You're defending and attacking. When anybody gets on us or criticizes us, our first response usually is to defend and attack or run away. But with the power of the Holy Spirit and the, and the resources that God provides, we're able to hang in there to persevere and to endure and do it with grace and dignity. That's what we can do. The testing of your faith produces perseverance. And you're like, oh, Doug, I'm so glad to hear that. That's exactly the outcome I was looking for. I was wondering how to get the perseverance. And now that you've told me it comes through trials and the way I respond, it's worth the effort. Probably not. You may have thought there should have been a better benefit up here, Doug, to prompt and motivate the behavior down there. 
But perseverance, wow. I can't even begin to describe the value of perseverance and patience. Now the, now the uh, popular word for it is resilience. A person who can get knocked down, who gets up, a person who faces difficulty, who does it with a calm demeanor, with a wisdom, with a grace and a dignity, resilience, endurance, who hangs in there long enough to let it mature, to let it work its way. That's what resilience is providing for us. If you don't choose the perseverance and resilience, then you will live your life as someone who runs away when it gets tough or puts up a defense, tries to intimidate others in tough times and not really learning or picking up on what God would have for you. And then the next verse says, let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so perseverance, when it finishes its work, then you mature, complete, lacking nothing. How would you like to live life with a mature perspective, knowing that you are completely provided with all that you need, you lack nothing to face anything that life throws you? That's what James is advocating here. And it all starts with your first response to a trial. You can develop that kind of maturity... Well, again, maturity is not in high regard in our society. I mean, look at social media posts. Usually, social media posts are, hey, I'm wild and crazy, and I'm here to have fun. Look at me. And that might work on your dating app until the guy shows up and responds to that, looking for that kind of person. You don't want to be that kind of person or be with the kind of person that attracts, right? Maturity is in short supply and high need. If you don't even desire it for yourself, you probably desire it from the people around you, especially those in your family or your marriage. Completeness. To have, if you bought a new car and it had almost everything on it that you needed except the transmission, that would be incomplete. You really want something that is complete. See, these are real-life benefits that come to us, lacking nothing. In other words, you've got it all together. When you face life, you've got it all together. You can face it with confidence and strength and with the experience of having gotten through it so that you can love God, love people, demonstrate wisdom and compassion with maturity. Immature fruit doesn't taste sweet. Immature people don't either. Maturity is where we're going.
Now, biblical maturity doesn't mean that a person is not fun. Biblical maturity means that a person lives life robustly. A biblically mature person is the kind of person that you want to be your best friend. You feel better about yourself in the presence of a mature Christian because they don't have to get your approval or demean you. They have a confidence and a security that is settling and protecting. That kind of person who's mature and complete, all supplied, all that you need. I think of it like a, a painting. Let's say a, a world-class painter finished a painting, a beautiful painting, whatever you like, and stood back from it and said, yes, that's complete. It doesn't need another brush stroke. Now, where did that painting originate? In the mind of the painter. And now the painter is looking at the fulfilled dream on canvas. The, the manifest of the desire. Did you know God has dreams for you? God sees you as you are, but he also sees you as you can be. He, just like every parent in the room, you look at your kids and whatever they're like, you look at it long term and you know their potential. God knows your potential and he wants to enable you to fulfill your potential and to manifest your destiny. That's where God is in relation to your life. He's there for you to bring you to that point of completeness, having it all together, being able to do what needs to be done. Now, James has painted an escalating scale here. And you may look at it and say, well, I might like a little bit of this, but I don't want to start with this. How about if I just go to seminary? When I get that, no, you will not get this in seminary. It comes as you face various trials. Each one after the other. But you may be saying, um, Doug, I, I'm just not sold on this. I mean, it sounds nice, um, but I, I'm just not sold. I don't think I'm going to be counting joy with the trial that I'm facing. And if you knew the trial I'm facing, you wouldn't either. I'm not going to do it. Well, here's the secret. Everybody does something. <laughs> if you decide you're not going to count it joy, what are you going to be doing? You're going to do something. Well, let's look at what's available if you choose not to count it joy. If you'll take your little diagram there, you'll see why we got this in the middle of the page. We're going to do a descending scale. If you choose not to consider this trial joy, what's available? Typically, complain and blame. Am I right? So you can say, Doug, I don't want to follow the biblical counsel, but you've got to consider you're going to do something, and usually it's going to be something that's going to be a downward slide. And so if you don't consider this trial a joy, but something that you just do not want any part of, and you try to get out of it, you try to avoid it, and you can't, and now you're complaining about it, you're bitter, you're miserable, 
and your faith weak faith is exposed up here your proven faith is dis displayed down here your weak faith is exposed now here's some good news for you if you're already on the slide and you're at this point this is a place where you can analyze your faith and say God I'm not up to this right now but I want to be I want to trust you I want to hear from your spirit I'm gonna go back and I'm going to count this joy so you can you can redeem this at this point when you realize that you're not doing well in this trial or this situation if you don't and you continue with your weak faith, ex faith exposed then instead of perseverance you are developing gosh what would it be unreliant independable undependable uh, quitter but it gets tough you bail or you try to enforce such a personality that other people will call off the trial but you become someone who's not dependable not reliable uh, a person that's not really valued by people around you and if this goes on and you keep bailing out of trials and difficulties then immature incomplete and uh, lacking everything no wonder your car is not working you don't have a transmission so you can see that you've got a choice and God is preparing you all the way if you're in his word if you're growing as a Christian you don't enter the trial in a deficit condition or even neutral you enter the trial with a robust faith having experienced God's care so you can be like okay God what's in this one this is gonna be tough and, and I've never faced this before and I can't figure out what to do but God I know that you will give me what I need I trust you I will stay in the game I will be reliable patient I will endure and thank you for developing in me maturity making me complete knowing that I I face life lacking nothing when it comes up you'll provide it's kind of stark when you look at it like that isn't it it's like well I didn't really know I thought just not considering it joy I was being somehow neutral you know the game you've been in trials before and you know what it's like when you try to do it on your own sometimes you can fight your way out but it's not pretty there's collateral damage but here James is giving us a path to provide for us Wow the kind of life you've always wanted and to be the kind of person you've always wanted to be and the kind of person your spouse knew you could be we faced a trial this last week 
my wife Rebecca had knee replacement surgery on Wednesday. If you've had that, uh, you know that you don't just walk in off the street and say, hey, I'd like a new knee. No. You've had some pain. You've had some trouble. And she endured it with uh, resilience and grace for as long as she could. Then she called an orthopedic surgeon. And we went in for the appointment. The x-ray, the uh, surgeon said, obviously, your knee is at the end of its rope here. Uh, you will not have relief from pain. You'll not be able to walk the way you want. It needs to be replaced. So there were some tears. The, the, the surgeon was, was very compassionate. And they began to describe, he began to describe the process. And he said, here's what we're going to do. Uh, you need to go to your, your medical provider and get these tests on your heart and your lungs and make sure that you're good for surgery. Go to the physical therapy place, and uh, they'll give you some uh, exercises both to prepare you for and for after the surgery. And then when you come in on the day of the surgery, here's what we will do. Uh, we will prepare you, and we will provide for you what you need during the surgery and after the surgery. And so one of the first things that happened was that the uh, anesthesiologist came in, and he put a uh, catheter in the top of her right leg where she was going to have the replacement. He had, he had this uh, ultrasound thing, and you could see the femoral artery, and, and he put it in the nerves that lead to this knee. On the other end of this catheter was a ball the size of a softball, and inside of that was the metered application of a medication that blocked pain, blocked those nerves from sending pain. Wow. And then she went into surgery, and they gave her a, I think, spinal block and some anesthesia so that she didn't have to listen to all the sawing and cutting and hammering and stuff. And, and then she came out, and she was in recovery, made sure she was fine, got her back to the room. Physical therapist came in, told her what she would need to be doing, said, you've got to keep your uh, range of motion to let the scar tissue. Let's get up and walk to the bathroom, and we'll get up and walk down the hall. This is an hour and a half after surgery. And then he sent, sent her home with medications for pain and with uh, a, a device that uh, circulates cold water around her knee. And so she went home, and we went home, and uh, I was cooking and uh, cleaning and doing laundry and stuff because Thursday was not a good day for Rebecca. I, I guess the next day after surgery is really, really tough. Pain, limitation. But Friday, it's like there was a resolve, there was dignity and strength. And so I began to get her up. She had a walker. We would walk around the kitchen and come back. Then we walked out on the deck. And then she walked down the stairs and up the stairs. And then she began to put the walker aside Yesterday, she's walking around on her own, and thank goodness she's cooking again. <laughs> she's doing great. But do you see the analogy? The Holy Spirit, God will provide for you better than the whole medical community can provide and, and prepare you for a knee replacement surgery. 
God wants to provide you with the information you need, the inspiration you need, the motivation you need to choose to walk the path that will result in you becoming the complete picture of the person God made you to be and intended for you to be. All you got to do, one little thing. When you encounter a trial, choose which way you're going to go. Consider it joy. Build your faith. Develop perseverance. And then that completeness and maturity, two days later, you'll have a chance to do it again from a higher perspective. Because trials keep coming, don't they? You can't take a break. They just keep happening. The choice you've got is not whether or not you'll have a trial. The choice you've got is your response. Consider it pure joy, all joy, brothers and sisters, when you face various trials. In a moment, you'll be taking communion. And you will be taking the cup and the bread that represents Jesus' sacrifice for you that restored your relationship with God the Father and provided for you the resources to face life in a way that a person who doesn't believe could never imagine. So as you partake of the communion, thank God and say, God, reveal to me where am I in my trials? And you can even pray, God, I want to choose joy. I want to want to consider it joy. Lift me up. Reveal yourself in and through me. And Father, give strength to all of us who have heard this today, that when we face a trial, we'll consider it joy. In Jesus' name.